yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time imon irok the yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochretche nach vetoch ara egornamian on kestchen ekol. Vien talam aginam griv arkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wackler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. This week we have Paddy Cosgrave in studio, the founder of the Web Summit and a man with an opinion on a lot of things. We're going to talk about the Web Summit, we're going to talk about tech, and then we're going to talk about Ireland, some of the issues that we have here. Let's start with the Web Summit. Paddy, first of all, you're welcome to the studio. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the Web Summit. So Web Summit's actually entering its 10th year. Next year will be the 10th anniversary. I was there in, in 2009, I remember interviewing Chad Hurley from YouTube. Uh, Brent Hoberman, I think, was there from LastMinute.com. My colleague John Kennedy was emceeing uh, the stage. It was a, f- it was a, it was a very uh, quaint uh, little uh, thing, which has blossomed into something with 70,000 people uh, this year. I think you're expecting Ed Snowden, Tony Blair, Mar- Marguerite Vestager, uh, Guo Ping from Huawei, who was who's here uh, last week. Um, in that decade, scaling the Web Summit, I mean, I don't know. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's worked out maybe a little bit better than I guess we expected. Uh, at what the did start. you expect? Um, well, I, I didn't go full time until March 2012. So mm. that probably tells its own tale. That what were I, you doing um, otherwise? I was trying other things um, and uh, wanted to start, a, help start a kind of a, an, another software company. And I didn't think that Web Summit could ever compete against at that time, some of the big players in Europe mm. or, or elsewhere in the world. Many of the biggest conferences in the world are 50, 60, 70 years old. Can Lions, big, biggest mm-hmm. kind of marketing conferences about 70 years old. The World Economic Forum is 50 years old. CES is, I think, 55 years old. And it's very hard to break into that type of um, scale. And then many other events are run by some of the largest media companies in the world. So without Mm. that clout, I just didn't think uh, we could do anything uh, to compete with them. Uh, And then I started meeting some of the people organizing some of the larger conferences around the world. And my expectation was that they would use elements of software to help make their events maybe a little bit better, uh, improve the likelihood that certain people would meet 
certain people mm. um, or whatever the case might be. And I just realized that all of these conferences, whilst many of them were fantastic, uh, were almost 100% analog. Maybe they might use a white-labeled attendee app that wasn't particularly good. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. It was better than nothing. Uh, and I just thought that we could maybe do something a little better. And in doing that, in using elements of software across everything that we do, we might be able to um, grow something. And mm. that, that that really started f for me personally um, in March 2012. Uh, and I I now know that I started paying myself a, a salary, 22,000 a year or something in August 2012. And um, we haven't looked back um, since then, started making kind of proper hires around that period as well. Um, and uh, it's been a you know, kind of a roller coaster uh, ever since. I mean, we'll do, I've, there's so much that I want to, to ask you because mm -hmm. it, you know, you yourself have been a central figure in uh, kind of Ireland's uh, the last decade in, industrially in the, in the tech uh, sector here. I mean, the Web Summit has scaled to become something that everybody has touched or been part of um, at some point. The company itself, though, has been relatively, relatively successful. Mm. Um, you said recently that you don't intend for the company to make a profit necessarily for the next 10 years, but, but yeah. it is profitable. It is making a profit. I mean, I think the last set of accounts that I saw for 2017 showed... I think it was a three million uh, euro profit, four million euro profit on almost 30 million euro revenue. So mm. the, the company is doing quite a lot of business now. Yeah, it's doing OK as, as, a, as a bootstrap company. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's doing great. Um, we now have a, you know, a, a team of about 240, 250 people mm. full time year round. Most of them are based in Dublin. Uh, it's an amazing group of people. Um, you know, we've made some great hires over the last two or three years and some of the people that joined us very, very early on, um, you know, have grown to run teams, um, to be, you know, just some of the most, they're just amazing people that I get to, that I get to work with, uh, on a daily basis. And at, at, a, at a certain point in our, you know, evolution, it was incredibly important that we were profitable from the start because we were bootstrapped. So whatever money we would make, uh, would help. Uh, keep the show on the road for, say, the six months after Web Summit. Mm. It, it was a very cyclical business. The majority of the revenue would come in in a three-month period of the year. Uh, we'd then kind of file our accounts, um, and hopefully we'd have enough money to kind of keep the lights on for the next uh, number of months. We, we now have um, some other large events uh, around the world, uh, the second largest being Collision, which is now in Toronto. Um, and that's changed the business uh, an awful lot. And, uh, of course, it's always important to have have a you know a little bit of a, a, a war chest so mm -hmm. you know we've built up um, a lot of retained uh, earnings um, that's just good to have I think in the event of you know maybe a, a rainy day or you want to make some acquisitions um, and then after that if you believe in the company and you want to grow it um, uh, over time, uh, I think you've got to make bets and you've got to uh, invest the money that's uh, coming in um, back mm. into the company. And so from our point of view, our bet over the longer term is that 
good software and design will continue to have a big impact on the events that, that we run. Uh, and perhaps in time, um, other events around the world will start to use the software that we build. So we now yeah. have nearly kind of 50 people, uh, you know, in specific engineering roles or related roles um, like design and data science, um, working with a much kind of longer term uh, view. And th that's a risk. Uh, it may turn out to be um, the wrong calculation and really we shouldn't be investing there at all and we should just be extracting kind of profit out of the company. But, um, you know, I think, so I think does, there's a good chance that it might work Does out. the conference end of it then to some uh, degree then uh, fund or subsidize? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the, you know, so the, you know, if, if you look at uh, one way of thinking about it is the gross margins are, are very high from that primary activity. Uh, and then we use a lot of that uh, margin to fuel long-term uh, initiatives. And that mm. started initially just with one engineer, Tony Ennis, who's kind of part of this Web Summit cohort. We've now got about 15 people that have worked for us that have gone on to build their own companies. So Tony went and founded a company in Asia that he's the CTO of. Uh, that's been doing incredibly well. They've raised 30 or 40 million. Um, but Tony's now been replaced by dozens of people. Um, and over time, the software we build, you know, hopefully is becoming, you know, you know, better. Mm. Um, and in time, hopefully we'll put it into the hands of, uh, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people organizing gatherings of different sizes in different industries all over the world. And just before we leave the topic, when you talk about an acquisition, do, do you mean that that would be an acquisition? You you have your eye potentially in the, the future on other events, other companies or, or other softwares? Yeah, uh, other software I companies, um, other events, um, acqui hires, um, you know, all, all, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think our time horizon by being a, an independent company is maybe a little, can be a little bit longer. If we had taken external investment, at the end of the day, the deal you do with investors at different stages is, you know, in three years time or five years time, or, you know, maybe God forbid, seven years time, mm. those investors will get a return. And that means that your time horizon has to be tightened and you have to kind of rush towards uh, an exit or uh, maybe mm. um, an IPO. And in, in, in our case, we retain the freedom to kind of at least focus uh, longer term. Yeah, because you did have two, I think you had two um, uh, uh, approaches, one for an outright buyout and another for yeah. an investment. That's, that's right, isn't it? One was for 150 million, then it was 250 million. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, over over time, so in, 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 in 2014, um, I mean, we didn't really progress with the, the bid. We just had, we, we, we had no interest, um, a company... That's now, you know, quite successful um, publicly listed um, event and trade show and conference company uh, doing a couple of billion in revenue uh, had set aside 150 million euros to buy Web Summit. And we just we, we, we weren't interested. Uh, they pivoted and bought a fintech conference in the United States for 140 million dollars. Um, there was a you know considerably smaller uh, than Web Summit, but still, I think, you know, it was probably a very good acquisition. Mm. Um, from the very start, since 2010, you know, investors in different guises have been offering uh, to invest. Um, and f for a range of different reasons, we've always just said no. Um, I think it takes a lot of energy to build a company without external uh, support. It can be quite stressful. Um, it 
you know, you don't have a, a slush fund to hire incredible talent. Um, we, we do now, but there were many years where things were, you know, incredibly lean. And I almost wonder if the recession hadn't happened. And, there, you know, this is one upside for us anyway. We, we were a net beneficiary of the recession because it meant that there was a huge amount of young people who were, you know, really talented, but didn't have anything to do. Mm. Uh, and they came and worked for us. Uh, these are, you know, brilliant people like Tony, who's gone on to build a great company. And there's many other people like that. Um, and you know, we would struggle to start a company now in Dublin where you've got you know near full employment and bootstrap it near full employment, mm. um, very high cost of living. Um, so times are times are different. Plus, I, I'm a little bit older, and I don't know if I'd have the energy to, to deal to deal with all the stress. Why are you, are you, you 30, 36, 37? 30, 36 now. Thirty six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you're okay. You've got a few years left. Um, That's not to say that taking money is a bad thing. Mm. You know, I think in certain circumstances, it's absolutely the optimal or only thing a uh, a company can do. It just really depends uh, on the uh, on the circumstances. It can also rapidly accelerate growth. Uh, you know, far far faster mm. than if you were to uh, bootstrap. And in certain circumstances, you know, it's a race uh, against other competitors. Um, and so you just have to get that launch velocity by losing using external capital. Uh, in our case, I think um, we can we can take a slower burn and longer view on things. One of the other reasons that some founders say for not taking external capital other than um, you know, dilution of their own shares is often they think that it dilutes their sense of purpose or control of the company, that, uh, that they don't have the reins in as, you know, as solidly as way as they had before the investment. Would that have been a factor for you? To, to a point, but in truth, as any company scales, unless the reins are distributed across a, a team, um, you know, I think, I, I th I, you know, I I don't think that's a great way to, to, to run a company. I mean, it, mm. so, so at this point, we've got, you know, amazing senior leaders, some who've been with us for, you know, five plus years, others who've, you know, scored Hollywood blockbusters and been based in Hollywood for 20 years and come back to work for us, others who've helped produce the Olympics and they've come to work for us, others who've been senior engineering leaders in major tech companies who've relocated into Ireland to work for us. Mm. Um, and, you know, eventually the, the reins kind of pass from singular founders or founders um, to a more kind of distributed model. And if that's not happening, I think that's just naivety on behalf yeah. of just, the, the, the cult of the founder, I think is a very dangerous um, cult. Well, it definitely exists though. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the cult of the founder, but the whole story and the narrative around the founder, I mean, you are somewhat a beneficiary of that. I mean, the Web Summit in Ireland, now there's two Web Summits, there's Web Summit Ireland and the Web Summit uh, outside Ireland, and I've seen it myself. Yeah, yeah. But in Ireland, the Web Summit is still very much associated uh, with you. you uh, sure. Frequently, sure. the strap line in articles when it's written about the Web Summit is Paddy Cosgrave's Web Summit. Mm. Um, not anywhere else in the world. No, no, Nobody not anywhere really else cares. in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you might argue there's downside to that, but there's mm. also... It is also a thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I mean, we've used the media. Um, I shouldn't use the term used, the media, well, but we have you can be honest, availed right? of media moments uh, mm. for the most part to drive recruitment. Um, and so the, the, the upside, I think, in Ireland... Um, of media for for us has been uh, the volume of people uh, that, that that apply to work at you know at mm. at, at web summit um, you know we've had you know 60 or 70,000 Irish people have applied to work at web summit at this point that's 
nearly one in every 40 or one in every 30 people working in the country has uh, has applied to work um, uh, at Web Summit. That's quite a, a stat. Lo- a lot of the awareness, I don't know why, um, but a lot of the awareness is... Um, uh, driven by you know by media and um, we're not selling tickets off the back of doing media in yeah. Ireland Ireland now represents less than one percent of our uh, our revenue but it is the major market where we hire people mm. and that's that, that's an interesting dichotomy I mean the, the Trinity degree thing did play into that as well right I mean the the whole for anyone who doesn't remember um, there was a minor kerfuffle over this idea that uh, you would accept uh, a two one from Trinity but you wanted a first from other universities and of course hackles rose and it became you know a, a small media firestorm in itself is yeah. that an example of what you're talking about helping to drive recruitment yeah i mean at the at the at the, at the time the details of the story kind of you know th- they got lost but that turned out to be okay so it was for a intern position at Web Summit for a non-engineering role. So if you had an arts degree, the recruiter had specified that a uh, arts degrees in six of the seven universities were three years and four years at the time in Trinity. I think there's been some change in that regard. And um, mm-hmm. a three and four year arts degrees were, were not directly comparable. And, uh, you know, it set the world on fire and the most trending stories, I think, in Ireland for three days were about that I was saying that Trinity degrees were, you know, uh, worth everything in the world and all other degrees be damned. Um, so to what it, it, But that, it turned out at the time, I was like, oh my God, this is just like the worst thing that has ever happened to us. Like, I can't, I literally can't walk down the street without people going, you should be ashamed of yourself. But what happened was we ended up getting literally 10,000 CVs within within about a week. And there was some weird second order uh, effect where a lot of young people in particular who had first class honours degrees in all sorts of things from all sorts of um, ITs and universities uh, in Ireland just started applying for jobs. Suddenly Web Summit was on the map. We, we would like have to rely on like networks of friends to get people to apply to work at Web Summit. But then suddenly people started thinking, oh, they look at these people. They only hire really smart people. Well, God damn it, I'm a really smart person. Is that, is that what you think happened? That it was just that second order effect? I mean, was, yeah, was, there, any, was there any pre- kind of conceived plan to set um, this in motion well the what was it? I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll i'll finish the story and come back mm. to that so we ended up with so many cvs and people will that's the workforce or did at the time will remember this we got something like twelve thousand cvs printed up in snap or reads printing we then just arranged them in arbitrary stacks on a massive table within our at the time very very small office and there were too many cvs to go through so we just said okay we're going to ignore all academic results entirely and we're just going to look for the obscure things that these people have done so we ended up finding a guy called Stephen toomey who was working as a he's working as a postman uh, and a part-time farmer in east cork at the time there was a Another guy, a hardware engineer who was working as a uh, a pizza dispatch boy, he called him. So he had Dan, actually had pizza delivery boy as his current uh, role. And we're just like, these people are just, they're just really kind of curious. And uh, we would just throw CVs on the ground. Then eventually we ended up with a pile of about kind of 50 people. And we hired some of the most amazing people uh, from that entire process. Um, were, so were he, did he, either the pizza delivery boy or the farmer from Cork make the shortlist? Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, came, they came. Oh, they, they came to work for you. They, they came to work point. for us. Okay. Yeah, 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 they came to work for us. And, uh, you know, I mean, like academic results, sure, they can be an indicator, mm. um, but they're not, you know, once somebody gets called for interview and is eyeballed by six or seven 
other people in the company mm -hmm. all, all of that stuff kind of fades into the background the question is can i can we work with this person mm. um you know, and various other, and academic results, you know, maybe they matter when you're straight out of university, but after that, quite quickly, what matters is how, you know, how you've done in your, in, 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 in your career. I mean, that would be the experience of most people who work, but at the time, yep. it seems like the biggest thing in the world. So, yep. if it, for you now, for Web Summit now, did, is there still um, a preference to go for, for example, a Trinity degree? rather than a different well, type of Well, for, firstly, most of the people that work for us, the most represented university is DCU. Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't know if you can infer anything from that. Secondly, we don't hire proportionately uh, many people out of um, university anymore. The average age of a new hire is about 30. So all of that stuff just kind of melts into the, uh, into the past. Mm. Um, I will say that when, when you are kind of starting a company, initially you just need a, a small group of and oftentimes generalists, people that are just good at a lot of things. So Tony Ennis was kind of this like quintessential full stack engineer. He could do a bit of everything. By that, it means kind of like front end, making things, you know, two degree pretty and then fi fi figuring out things uh, in the back end. Um, but then over time, as a company grows, you need very specific skill sets. And those skill sets are usually developed with time in a particular role in a company. So, you know. Whether you went to university or not, or you know, our head of speakers who leads on that, you know, dropped out of secondary school. So you know, it it does and it doesn't matter. But you won't you won't hire from tech multinationals, is that right? Um, well, we I know we, we we about nine months ago or something like that earlier this year we we had been going back and forth, and I shared something kind of privately at the time. So. For a while, um, we experimented hiring salespeople from Irish uh, tech, tech multinationals. So these huge um, employers in Ireland with uh, very large sales organizations. And with the benefit of hindsight, so we did this for about two years, hired, you know, on paper, really, really qualified people who'd run regions, countries uh, in some of the major household names uh, in uh, Dublin. These are kind of, you know, I'd say mid to senior level uh, people. But something really interesting happened when they came uh, to work for us. Um, I think when you work in a huge sales organization, maybe it's a thousand or 10,000 10, people, you're not really learning the skill of selling. You're just learning a particular system. Uh, mm. It's hard to articulate it, but um, I think when you go to work for a very large company, they know exactly what they're selling and they know exactly how you should sell it. So you spend a long period of time uh, onboarding, learning the script, learning exactly what it is you're selling uh, and a prescription to follow. There's a, there's, a, there's a reason why selling inside a very large sales organization is prescriptive. If it wasn't, the company wouldn't be able to figure out why some people were successful and why other people mm. were successful. So they have to get people to stick by and large to a highly defined kind of system, mm. uh, almost reading from the script. Um, and they can then measure uh, what different sales approaches or techniques work better or worse in, uh, in certain markets. Um, we as a sales organization aren't at the scale of thousands or tens of thousands uh, of people just yet. Um, and we also, when you're selling for a very large established company, uh, you're more, I, I think, an 
you know, sometimes, sometimes an order taker for a, a huge and established brand. Everybody knows uh, who Google are. Everybody mm -hmm. knows who Facebook are. Um, now that doesn't apply that rule internally. That now applies for salespeople. So we don't we don't we don't apply uh, hire salespeople out of uh, multinationals, except in very exceptional uh, circumstances. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to um, say finance, for example, the jobs, um, you know, how you undertake your role as a as an accountant internal to one company tends to be kind of globally similar because there are just established kind of accounting practices uh, and those are interoperable or movable between uh, companies. Uh, so there's absolutely certain skill sets we'll hire out of multinationals for, uh, but just on the sales side, we've at least, and that's only, you know, I can only talk for us, mm -hmm. had, had very poor um, uh, experience. That's interesting because we, we had spoken yeah. a couple of years ago. And I was ago. wrong. I, I had actually assumed yeah. the opposite. That um, there was a sales... Uh, funnel yeah, yeah that there was an incredible sales funnel and then we started making um um some of those hires now we have made some hires out of some of the tech multinationals that have worked out spectacularly there's a guy called craig who works for us um came from indeed and he's mm -hmm. you know absolutely brilliant um but we had to turn over a lot of quite senior salespeople um from tech multinationals that we'd kind of gone on a hiring spree it's interesting so the picture you're kind of painting there indeed when you mentioned indeed indeed yep. reminds me a little bit of hubspot and it's that kind of a company there's an awful lot of energy there in their sales there's there's an awful lot of um almost inspirational poster uh, uh culture yeah. there as yeah. well um maybe some of that translates yeah now the people we've hired in almost all instances are incredibly driven and they're they're very much like point me in the right direction and i will run right in that direction towards that point mm -hmm. all day, every day uh, for you. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, we don't have an incredibly defined um, process. Uh, you know, as we scale, of course, it'll become more defined. Uh, but oftentimes when, you know, we have folks internally who are dealing directly with the, you know, CEO or CIO of Volkswagen uh, or Google, what those specific companies want um, can be quite varied because Google may want to make a product announcement. Uh, Volkswagen may want to display a car. These these are somewhat similar, but also very different things. Mm -hmm. And that requires the salesperson to be quite um, flexible, uh, to be quite kind of quick on their feet and be able to not follow a script, um, mm -hmm. which if you've been brought up on a system, uh, that can be quite a daunting Yeah, there's uh, a challenge. big culture difference in a lot of those big companies. Even as a journalist, you yeah, see it in yeah. dealing with uh, uh, some of the, the people in the different companies. And before I go uh, on to the next thing I want to talk about, just a quick one on MoneyConf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one glorious year in the, in the RDS, uh, repatriated to Ireland at the time. There was a lot of uh, good feeling about it. And then it was cut, brought back, to to Lisbon was it the topic that just struggled to to scale like the the uh, the fintech topic or was there something about it being held here yeah well it's a really interesting vertical so at the time when um uh, moneyconf um became a, a standalone conference um we made a decision to keep moneyconf running within web summit so for people that aren't familiar within web summit we have about 20 separate conferences each with their own brand so for sports we have sports trade for data scientists we have binate uh, for people in fintech we have uh, moneyconf so we spun moneyconf out to the other side of the year as a standalone conference and we kept a moneyconf conference running within web summit 
And over time, um, what started to happen was that our fintech kind of partners and a lot of the, the banks moving in a, a much more kind of innovative direction uh, were uh, more interested uh, in paying a higher premium to be at Web Summit to sell to people outside of the, the fintech sector um, than they were at a standalone event. So standalone event was very successful in and of its own right. Um, and so that kind of, that started to kind of pop up. That was certainly within our thinking that people were happy to pay three times more per square meter at Web Summit um, than at a standalone mm. MoneyConf event. That was the first thing. And then the second thing, um, we had an event in North America that we started a few years ago called Collision. It's like Web Summit, mm -hmm. but it's in North America. And over the last year, that's grown faster in a single year than, than Web Summit has ever grown. We had more uh, exhibitors taking more space at Collision uh, 2019, so May of this year in Toronto, than we had at Web Summit 2018 in Lisbon. Is that just because of the North American market? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think we also got lucky. We we you know we it was were Las Vegas first. Yeah, then, it was Las, New, then Orleans. New Orleans, and yeah. then you know we were kind of lobbied quite hard by the Canadian government, uh, by Trudeau, and by the mayor of Toronto, um, and decided, okay, let's move to Toronto. And almost uh, something interesting has kind of happened. A lot of American companies are struggling to get visas for a lot of their staff, so they're opening up important offices in Canada, mostly uh, in Toronto. So there's been this huge influx and growth in focus uh, on Toronto. And I just think we've been kind of, mm. you know, we've almost fluked it. We've been the net beneficiaries. It's almost like going to Lisbon. We made a bet that Lisbon could be quite interesting. Uh, and it has become one of the kind of hot um, startup and kind of tech capitals uh, in Europe over the last two or three years. I, I don't really think, I'd love to say that's because of Web Summit, but I actually think that wave was already starting and we just got lucky that we kind of partly spotted it, but didn't really anticipate how big it would get. And I think in the case of Toronto, it's just been a tidal wave. Yeah. that was beginning to be obvious, but now that we're there, it's suddenly a reason for every tech company, especially in the United States, to go to um, to go to Canada. Yeah, I've often posited before a couple of years ago, and I've yeah. put it to you before as well, that one of the holy grails for, for the Web Summit is to be able to demonstrate that it can actually um, move to another city and still uh, be a, a very, very large event, attracting an awful lot of people at, with uh, tertiary benefits outside the, the conference itself. Looking back now, just to come back to this 10-year thing, do you think that's been proven? Is that would you uh, has was that ever a goal? Um, no, the, I mean, like th that's not a goal. That's a second order consequence uh, of the event. And uh, last year, when the British government, German, French, Italian, and Spanish started bidding very aggressively for uh, for Web Summit, um, the reason was because of these second order consequences. So, uh, Web Summit being in Portugal was generating um, a huge amount of media exposure, just free essentially media in the Financial Times, the New York Times, all of these kind of premier publications, bringing thousands of journalists to the country, putting it on a pedestal that perhaps it hadn't been uh, in the past, uh, and other larger economies wanted uh, wanted some of that. Um, so others have posited that it has this second order consequence that hundreds of millions of these has been generated for the Lisbon local economy and will be this year uh, during Web Summit. But I think what these larger economies were chasing when they bid for the kind of 10-year uh, Web Summit was um, 
the other second order consequences, the perception that the country is very much moving in an innovative direction, mm. um, a platform for their domestic companies uh, to use an opportunity to bring some of the world's leading investors and CEOs into the country. Um, you know, um, so yeah. it's not, yeah, that's, that's if that makes any sense. Okay. Yep. I want to put to you a, b- a piece of Wikipedia vandalism that mm. I found uh, under your name. Under the, the uh, current entry for Paddy Cosgrave on Wikipedia, he has engaged in attacks against Ireland and its tax system, an attack which is a joke since Amaranthine, Amaranthine, an investment fund set up by Mr. Cosgrave with other Web Summit founders, is based in California but registered for tax purposes in Delaware, an effective tax shelter. So this... Is, is, that, is that correct? Well, the first, uh, well let's, let's just divide it into two parts. So the first part... Um, the, I'm assuming you didn't yeah, write yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> no, I'm assuming no. this is uh, no, no, somebody no. who got into the Wikipedia. Um, maybe, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm only I'm only aware of uh, one vandal on uh, on Wikipedia. Uh, just one. Just well, uh, one one particular vandal, okay. in the, which 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 is. Luckily, this is a recorded podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so. Um, the first part, it's a joke. I think there's there's two parts to that. Firstly, the tax loopholes that I pointed out mm. um, six, let's say six months ago, which prior to that had been very articulately explained by two uh, university professors in Ireland and the master of the high court. Mm-hmm. I didn't think people were taking it particularly seriously. So I decided, is there a way to highlight this? Uh, and my read of the situation was that the important people to highlight what was happening in Ireland with were people external to Ireland, was for the most part foreign media, who were already quite fixated on Ireland because of the Apple case. And so I uh, reached out to a lot of media uh, around the world, um, several of whom started digging into these particular um, loopholes. Um, Dozens of freedom of information requests were put into the Department of Finance and other kind of orifices of the state about these particular loopholes. And I think as a consequence of that, in part, um, the Minister for Finance correctly a number of weeks ago stood up in his kind of budget speech and said, look, these property funds have been aggressively avoiding tax, to quote Pascal Donoghue, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to put a stop to that. Um, so I don't think that's a joke. I think that's quite real. And I think that's quite important uh, that it's done. In Ireland, I think there's a conflation between what I sometimes say about tax and what's in the national interest. These tax loopholes are not in the national interest. They are absolutely in the interest of a very small uh, professional class and associated advisors who mostly operate in Dublin. They've done incredibly well out of our FDI model. So if you think about our FDI model, it's a, you know, it's a sacred cow that you can't attack. But if you dig a little deeper, I think it's quite telling why you can't attack it. Employment in the FDI sector peaked in 2000. It has been in systemic decline. Uh, the percentage of people employed, which is the, the metric that the IDA used to use, is, is at a generational low. It peaked in 2000. It's now down to about 14% of the workforce. Do you the mean apps, pri- you prim- being primarily employed by yeah. those FDI yeah, yeah, companies yeah, yeah. as opposed to the services? Yeah, that- multi- multinationals have never employed less people in a generation That's uh, hard in to this believe. country. The figure that the IDA uses very understandably now in the government is the absolute number of people employed in multinationals. Mm-hmm. But the absolute number of people employed in Ireland has gone through the roof in a generation. 
it's the relative number of people employed in the multinational sector has declined. But, what but unemployment you, but, has collapsed as well. So if unemployment went from, say, 17% to, say, 6%. I'm talking about 2000 being the peak, so I'm not talking about 2008. Yeah. 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 So, so even so still, it wouldn't be higher than so 10%. To, so to make a comparison, yeah. so people, you know, use Eurostat data, go check out the percentage of the workforce employed in the multinational sector mm-hmm. in Ireland. Uh, and, you know, we're just barely now ahead of Denmark and Sweden that do absolutely nothing for multinationals to locate in their countries. But what's really happened over the last decade is tax receipts have just gone through the roof. The amount of money being kind of pushed through the country by primarily uh, the great work of tax partners uh, in accountancy and law firms, it's, it's an unimaginable amount of money. Mm-hmm. They've done incredibly well. They're the great defenders of this entire model. Mm-hmm. And that's the sacred cow. They're the real sacred cow. Mm-hmm. Nobody, like, only now are people talking about the fact that, you know, more than half of the people working in Silicon Talks have no rights. They have no labor rights at all because they're on rolling contracts. But you don't talk about that stuff well, because that might infringe well, the on the rights thing, of some tax partners yeah. to make unbelievable amounts of money. Well, there's we're, another we're, issue. we're talking truly life-changing an, amounts surely, of money. There's another issue there in terms, money through Ireland. in terms of Silicon Docs because yep. I've written for more than 10 years. The thing that I've always been curious about is mm. the biggest boom sector uh, other than financial services in Ireland has been tech. You might argue yep. pharma as well, but yep. has been tech. And yet there are, there's no organized labor. There's no uh, unions. I'm pretty sure the Web Summit doesn't have uh, a union either. But the bargain, even when I have called up the unions here in Dublin and asked them, put that to them, they have always come back to me and said, look, the understanding here is that they pay slightly higher than average uh, wages. They're, mm-hmm. they're in, in an economy where there is not high unemployment and that's the way life is. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about rights, the rights of Silicon Docs workers, <coughs> surely that is the way that the consensus has emerged, whether it's right or wrong, is that those workers are part of a system where the premium is in the money they get and the low unemployment rather than the protection of their uh, th- their rights. Like, okay. like, for example, in the media sector, like yeah. we've just laid off 80, of 80 print, uh, yeah. a, 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 yeah. in, in the printing plant. Now, that's maybe a slightly different category when you talk sure. about rights and, and protections. Well, you can talk what's good for the individual <clears throat> and what's good for the economy. Broadly, I think... Um, for an economy at large, having more than half of the employees in many of the largest employers in this country on rolling contracts, that means that those multinationals can click their fingers and overnight all of those people are unemployed, mm-hmm. is a dangerous situation for a country to leave itself in. That's exposing Ireland to the risk of, of to use the recent kind of, to quote the former governor of the central bank uh, recently said, look, this is a supernova that could explode uh, at any moment. And so I just think the risk uh, to the economy at large is quite significant. Don't get me wrong, the risk to um, the professional services sector who've done unbelievably out of this whole scheme over the last number of decades is relatively low. They're incredibly well off. They're incredibly well remunerated. Um, The risk is actually everybody else. Right, so Uh, the house wins. All the restaurants, all the cafes. You know, there are restaurants really struggling in the city right now. And then at the same time, down in Silicon Docks, half of those people could just 
be gone overnight. I mean, uh, no redundancy whatsoever. But is and that, that that has a very that has a very significant impact on kind of overall risk and. But it, but is that overstating the likelihood of that happening? And and yeah. I I see exactly the point you're making, and it's a very reasonable one. Sure. You know, rolling contracts, almost the gig economy. We're halfway to the gig economy with that kind of a, a mindset, but really uh, hasn't that industry shown over the last decade, and I'm being devil's advocate here, yeah. that actually they're very unlikely to be to be let to be let go. That actually some of those companies might go bust and yes, there yeah. could be issues. But overall sure. the well, sector, so, so, the biggest companies yeah, yeah. Are so now in that sector. I think what's interesting is you should look at the number of job openings in, let's say, Facebook and Google in London, which mm-hmm. are not their European headquarters. Uh, and you know, I check it from time to time. You know, if Dublin really, if this is really the site uh, where they're uh, the, that are that is truly their European headquarters and they're committed to the future, and these companies continue to grow, uh, you know, at the, at the most unprecedented rates in history, I think they're thirteen thousand. Those two, yeah. Google and Facebook, yeah. between them now in Dublin have thirteen thousand sure. people, eight thousand. 5,000. Yeah, and again... But I, only half of them are staff. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think what's worrisome uh, is that the relative rates of increases uh, in employment have begun to uh, have begun to slow. And I think that's part of a hedge within these companies that Ireland isn't going to get to choose its economic model going forward, that the OECD, other large nations and uh, other organisations like the OECD are going to foist or push on Ireland um, you know, read us the riot act and say, "Look, guys, you've been you've been running this scheme for uh, a number of decades. Mm. It's got more egregious. There's a lot of angry people on the streets all over the world at this point. They're wondering where is all the money that used to pay for their health systems, used to pay to keep their roads in good repair, mm. used to pay for their school systems. It's disappearing. The burden of taxation is shifting overwhelmingly on working people, whilst the the wealthiest in our societies across Europe are paying less. That's really pulling at the whole kind of fabric of the European model. We're going to need to switch." Switch this thing off in Ireland. Uh, I think there is a. I wouldn't. I, I'm. I'm not, in no way the first or only mm. person to say that. I just think there's elevated risk uh, associated with that. I do think, to be fair to the current government, they kind of recognise that and they're trying to, uh, you know, diversify uh, the Irish economy. And this budget maybe was the most kind of pro-indigenous company budget uh, in. Yeah. Uh, memory. I mean, the bargain has always been in Ireland, Mm -hmm. as I have understood it, in relation to having this kind of a, you know, aggressively friendly tax system, that this is a small country in Ireland on the periphery of Europe. We don't have the infrastructure of France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, even the UK, and that therefore um, the rest of the continent will sort of allow big tech multinationals uh, to you know, to, to set up here to give the country some kind of a, you know, a, a boost while they, you know, continue on with making things and in their industry. Because otherwise, if it yeah. was absolutely even across the board, yeah. um, why would any company come to Ireland? I mean, why wouldn't they just stay in the Paris region or the Munich region or yeah, you know, I mean, Stockholm? It, it was the, the, the deal originally was about creating jobs yep. and that deal began to break down in 2000. Uh, and the deal that's been running for the last 10 years has been the deal of the century mm. for a couple of hundred tax partners, mostly, and other advisors in the IFSC and a couple of big firms, mm. um, which has moved many more billions through the economy, even though that's going to put us at loggerheads with the large trading powers who will eventually slam the door shut mm. because we've taken the piss, frankly. Mm. But, you know, they, they, they don't care because in the intervening period, they've made 
incredible amounts of money and kind of everybody else really hasn't really done that well out of it at yeah. all. To take the second part you know? of my Wikipedia vandalism quote yeah, yeah. Um, saying that, well, you know, Mr. Cosgrave, it's, it's, it's nice for him to say that. But on the other hand, when it suits um, him and his own company interests, he will choose uh, somewhere with the most, with the friendliest uh, tax regulations or, or purposes, uh, being Delaware, for example, in the US. I mean, is that a fair yeah, criticism? I, I mean, I also don't believe in a two-tier health system, but I, I have private health insurance. Mm. I think private schools should not be subsidized by the state, yet I will send my kids uh, to, uh, to a private school. Um, I'm not going to sacrifice myself or... Uh, my own children or my company on the altar of my own uh, personal uh, beliefs. I've, you know, um, a responsibility to ensure um, my company remains uh, competitive uh, compared to all the other companies that we compete with. Uh, and if the rules are overwhelmingly geared uh, in one particular direction. I'll, I'm going to avail of those rules at the same time as I'm campaigning. But is that uh, exactly the same attitude that the big uh, companies who are using those rules here at the moment. Oh, sure. And I, do, I, do, I don't criticize the companies. I think the companies have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder return. Uh, nothing they're doing uh, is illegal. It's a very different matter if they're doing something that's illegal. Mm. Um, so my focus, if you look at the property uh, tax issues has not been on the property funds. It's instead been on the people that can change legislation uh, that w will shut the doors that allow these mm -hmm. property funds avail of those uh, of those of those loopholes. The, and, the, that, and, that, and that's something that shouldn't be lost. Yeah, I mean, one question that some listeners would have is, why yeah. are you so interested in this stuff? Why are you so vocal about it? Why do you, are you so persistent on it? You use your social media quite a lot sure. um, to this end. Yeah. Well, I, I, firstly, I think anybody that went to university, uh, you know, and, I mean, writing for a college newspaper, uh, I'm sure all of about two people uh, read it. But I was, you know, writing and vocal about these things from a very young age. Anybody that went to school with me, I was interested uh, in much the same things. And I think over time, uh, when you're in a relative position of financial safety um, and you have some... Uh, ability to influence people then you know it's a, it's it's not you know i think it's 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 not a i wouldn't say it's a, i do feel there's some moral obligation mm -hmm. that you pursue policies that have really nothing to do with my company uh if you know if anything some of the things i push uh have a net negative effect uh mm -hmm. on the on, on 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 the company's bottom line um they don't benefit me um but I just think that um, they are, uh, on, in some cases, on moral grounds, incorrect policies, and in other cases, just a really bad way to, to, to run an economy. I think people should be talking about the fact that employment in the multinational sector as a percentage of total employment peaked in 2000. The reason it's a sacred cow, the reason it's so celebrated is because some very well-spoken, very smart people, just not many of them, a couple of hundred, many hundreds, maybe 500, uh, working in some big law firms and accountancy firms and other advisory firms in Dublin are making an absolute fortune for the last 10 years. Mm. They're the real defenders of the system. They're the ones who clamp down on really any talk about the fact that employment and multinationals diverged or decoupled in roughly 2000. And what's really been happening is the amount of money washing through the economy has gone through the roof, but that's putting the country at kind of unnecessary levels of risk because we're 
now kind of at loggerheads with some major economies elsewhere around the world who are just saying, Ireland, this is like over the top type mm. stuff. The other beneficiaries. This isn't about jobs. This is about like swindling us out of money that should be collected as tax in our countries to pay for our health systems uh, mm. and um, education systems. And instead, it's been siphoned through Ireland and you're taking a few pennies in the in the euro. Well, we could talk. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A different, it's a different podcast about, in terms of Irish mores and culture and, and, and what we... The political system we have and why we elect our TDs. So when people say I'm criticising Ireland, I'm not criticising Ireland. I'm I'm criticising very narrow policies that benefit a tiny sliver of the population and not really everybody else. Yeah. Um, And uh, you know, it's just that some people confound the national interest with their very narrow. Uh, interests. Oh, everybody does that. You know, and that's, I mean, that's, 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 that's the just normal. I mean, uh, the other thing about FDI and these... You know, so when I, when I talked about the property funds, I had senior partners in accountancy firms call me and say, this isn't true, this isn't happening, can you stop talking about this? Yeah. And I was like, well, it's not... I saw one or two come back. If it's yeah. not true, why are you calling me? Uh, and then six months later, Pascal Tunna, who says, yeah, it is, look, I'm not going to give any credit to Paddy Cosgrave. That's yeah. that annoying guy well, i don't um, think he actually said that but yeah yeah yeah, yeah no um so um, uh the other beneficiary sector yep. from google having eight thousand people or facebook having yep. five thousand people and all of these other companies uh is the, the value of uh, apartments and and houses around large swathes of dublin now has gone through the roof a two-bed apartment in you know dublin six will regularly cost you five hundred thousand euro now that's another one of the things that you regularly have a tilt at is the uh, the property industry here. Yeah, well, I, I, I actually would be very optimistic. So I think that many of these issues are going to be addressed, uh, or potentially addressed very rapidly uh, over the coming decade. And the people that are going to push for policies that will solve our housing and health issues in particular are the exact same accountants I'm railing against. Because the smarter kind of accountants and lawyers who specialize in tax and related services already realize that the writing is on the wall and their fee income is dependent on having clients. And if their clients are going to leave Ireland en masse, then, you know, they're not going to be able to pay down the three mortgages on their large properties that they own around the world. So they're going to need to find other sources of income. And the primary remaining sources of income are going to come from the indigenous sector in Ireland. So they're then going to need to start to focus uh, on uh, pushing policies to mostly the Department of Finance. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember for the last number of decades, the primary authors of tax legislation and related policy in Ireland uh, have been the lawyers and accountants. Um, They've kind of... um, you know, their their lobbying power is is incredibly um, significant, um, and I think they will turn that lobbying power um, into fixing uh, many of the protracted issues that have affected mm. the country for more than a, more than more than kind of two or three decades. So if you think about it, um, within tax havens. The cost of living is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how much it costs to employ people internal to a tax haven because that's not why the dominant companies or largest companies are there. The cost of labor is an irrelevancy. What's important is can they use this domicile or this location to shift money through it uh, or to sink money into it? In the Mm -hmm. case of Ireland, we're the largest shifter of profits in the world. 
And that's what's important. Cost of living doesn't matter. In Germany, cost of living matters an awful lot to the dominant business interests in that country. Why? Well, because their focus, their focus is advanced manufacturing. In advanced manufacturing, the primary inputs, let's call it the steel, are priced globally. So the price of steel everywhere in the world is commodified and that input is the same. The difference between nations is the cost of labor. And if the cost of labor is going to be the big difference, then the dominant business interests get in the ear of politicians on the left and on the right, and they say, you cannot allow the cost of labor get out of control. Mm. So what are the primary determinants of the cost of labor? It's cost of living, it's housing, it's health, it's insurance. And so in other countries, they've been able to, to quite an extent, solve most of these problems. The cost of housing in most of Germany over the last decade uh, has declined. Well, the popul when population has been declining there as well. There is an issue that there, there are other structural issues that feed into that. Uh, in Ireland, particularly around Dublin, the population overall has been expanding. Supply hasn't kept up in the last uh, few years. Well, actually, the population between 25 and 35 has has collapsed over the last uh, 10 years. So we're, we're in minus or Dublin? in Dublin. We're minus uh, nearly 80,000 uh, people, if you actually look at the CSO uh, data. Do you mean between uh, the canals for, or do you mean the, the whole, the, no, the, what's the wider? What's, what's, what's counted is County Dublin. I'll have to check that. I'll take your word for it, but that's a big surprise You know, these are, me. these are, you know, sometimes, you know, the CSO really does put out uh, kind of very uh, interesting points, but mm. even, even if it had increased, um, so decreased by 80,000, but even if it had increased by, let's say, 300,000, there are policies that are pursued elsewhere and quite successfully. And the only question is, why aren't they pursued at the moment uh, in Ireland? And in my view, that's because the dominant lobbying power, the people that are constantly in the ears of uh, the government, don't have an interest in solving it. Their primary interest uh, is in you know, creating more tax loopholes. Well, it, so if you look, yeah. if you look, look at the finance bill, all the lobby, lobbying that will go on behind the scenes for the next eight, eight, eight weeks, look at all the modifications or just pick up a finance bill yourself and look at the sheer volume of innovation and uh, new policies, new kind of tax loopholes that are kind of uh, injected every single year. There's a tremendous amount of kind of policy activity in Ireland. There's no shortage of kind of pressure. There's no shortage of ideas. It's just unfortunately very few of those ideas have to do with solving issues around health and housing because the dominant group of vested interests are professional services firms and multinationals who have no interest in solving Yeah, I mean, problem. there is a counter view which would suggest that if you try and put some of those provisions on a ballot uh, uh, paper yeah. for the people, if you try and introduce a more equitable property tax, if you try rent control, things that could really change the system, you'll be thrown out in your ear. And the, 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 the crowd who say that they won't do any of that, we see it in the councils uh, in Dublin, the, the local authorities, uh, the, the parties who... You say that they're left of centre, uh, propose tax decreases on, on local services because they think that that's what their uh, electors want. So you could make that argument as well. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, again, my argument is that um, as the threat of multinationals leaving the country uh, or unwinding their positions, you know, say by 2025 or 2030 uh, increases, um, this is going to lead to a situation where for the first time, uh, you know, the, the smartest kind of partners in many of the law firms and accountancy firms mm -hmm. are going to become the lobbyists for the indigenous sector. And as a consequence, they'll, they will help contribute towards solving these issues. And I've already seen one tax partner in particular uh, begin to lobby the government in a very active way for the first time to uh, solve some, some of these issues, which I think is quite telling. Yeah, I... 
the, just the last point on that, yeah. I do talk to some of these senior executives from some of these companies from time to time. Mm. And it's always that's always one of the underlying questions. How long are you really going to be here? I have to say, talking to, if you take a company like Apple, for example, they had a really good chance to cut their ties with Cork and Ireland or to downscale after that whole yeah. uh, uh, tax fine. They didn't do it. Um, yeah. To uh, be fair, I talked to senior leaders also in several of these companies that are based for the most part in California. And they do tell me, you know, some of them have, say, 10,000 people employed here. And they say, yeah. look, we will probably keep 1,000 to 2,000 people here. You know, yeah. there's no reason for them to shut down everything. But they also have to have plan B, plan C, plan D, because they don't know how things are going to work yeah, out. They have to have those with, plans. But with, it, with these if, if what you're suggesting were even were remotely, really, remotely really to pass, yeah. we would be screwed. We would be absolutely screwed. It yeah. doesn't look like that's going to happen. right? But but we're only, you know, who yeah. knows? Yeah. We, we don't know. Um, do you think you're left wing? Do you describe yourself as left wing? Um, on yeah, sure. I mean, on certain it 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 kind of might depend uh, on the uh, on the issues. I um, personally, the most know, of the issues we've talked about today, yeah, you you come across as somebody who is uh, slightly left of center campaigning, certainly reform, pro-reform, but also maybe left of center. Well, if, for example, a lot of my ideas with regard to uh, property um, would be considered right of center in Germany. So the kind of dominant uh, business lobbies in Germany uh, promote policies pretty much ident identical to say task, mm -hmm. you know, but task mm -hmm. would be considered particularly left wing uh, in, um, uh, in Ireland. Mm. Um, but the policies in Germany that are pushed uh, by the business uh, groups are designed to reduce the cost of housing to as low as is almost possible. Mm. Um, and that's considered for some reason, maybe anti-business or, you know, in, in, in Ireland, when I think it's very pro-business to reduce the cost of uh, housing to uh, as, low as, as low as possible. Yeah. And it's entirely consistent with the ideas of kind of classical liberalism. You know, all the great economists stretching back 250 years did not think that um, increasing costs of housing had anything to do with a healthy economy. Mm. In fact, if anything... Um, increasing asset prices uh, were a subtrahend uh, or a drag on actual real economic activity. Mm -hmm. You know, wealth is created by people uh, trading between each other, not from people buying and selling houses. We could talk a lot longer, but uh, I think I've kept you long enough. So just to wrap up the Web Summit, um, I've mentioned some of the, the big speakers you have. You've uh, Ed Snowden, Tony Blair, Marguerite Vestager, Guo Ping, Eric, Eric Cantona. What's he going to talk about? Uh, I don't even think Eric Cantona knows what Eric Cantona is going to talk about. <laughs> That'll be the most attended session the whole... It pre yeah, it might be. I'd love Eric Cantona to interview uh, Edward Snowden, but uh, I'm not oh too sure. Oh, my God. I'm not that's too sure. That's pay-per-view. It yeah. would be absolutely pay-per-view. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I one of the things about Web Summit not being in Ireland is when it was in Ireland... I mean, there was a contingent from Ireland that went, but it, it wasn't a particularly large contingent. Mm. Now that it's in uh, Lisbon, um, you know, the same tech startup contingent go, but there's mm. a much wider group of uh, of Irish people who uh, who go. We kind of seem to have more Irish attendees at Web Summit in Lisbon than we had in um, uh, in Dublin. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of factors. The event itself has got bigger. Uh, and also, I think when the event was in Dublin, People really didn't get to 
you know, experience the full extent of the event because they were also on duty in the evening, putting kids to bed or whatever the case may be. Yeah. They, they had to nip in and out of the office. It was kind of a half week. Mm -hmm. Whereas you go to Lisbon now, it's a complete full commitment and uh, mm -hmm. you get to enjoy all aspects of the event by day. And you also get to, you know, go out to interesting events in the evening as well. So that could, be the, could be the driving factor. We got married in County Mayo and one of, I remember Ian Kyo, yeah. uh, before I got married, advising me not to have the wedding in Dublin. And he said the reason why was because when people travel to go to your wedding, they're committed. They can't say that they're going home at 11 o'clock to relieve the babysitter. So I guess that's yeah. what you're talking about. Certainly in the, the years that I've been there in Lisbon, whether it's um, the Flanders event, with Paul Hayes, or, you know, there's there are a lot of after parties there. And it's, it is actually worth attending if you if you want to, if you want to, uh, uh, to meet different people from even from from home, people that you you rarely see yeah, otherwise, yeah. guys like Mike Ross and people like yeah, that. Yeah, you, you, yeah. Mike Ross goes literally to do business for yeah. his job in Dublin, yeah, in Lisbon, and yeah. it, it's quite effective. And you know, there's American investors who only effectively invest in companies in Silicon Valley. Mm. They'll come all the way to Lisbon only to meet uh, interesting startups. From Silicon I'm interviewing a, one or two Irish people who I've never met because they happen to be there. Wow. So, wow. Uh, Great. Uh, Looking forward to it. So thanks, Paddy Cosgrave, for coming into uh, studio with us today. Are you going to go on Wikipedia um, later today? No, Maybe? I am no. not. You're going to let that stand? I'm not a Wikipedian. Okay. Uh, All right. Contrary to the conspiracy theories spread gonna, by... I'm going to check it tonight. Thanks for that last little uh, nugget there. So that's all we have time for this week in the Big Tech Show. It's me, Adrian Wacker, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. Thanks a million for listening. We'll be here same time next week. Bye-bye.